everyone. The Inside Influence team and I are taking an eight-week sabbatical this winter, or summer if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, to generally reset, recalibrate, and refill our creative tanks. Now, for many of us, myself included, that means traveling across the world to see family members where it has been far too long between hugs. To keep you fueled while we're gone, fear not, we have traveled back through the archives, back through time, and pulled out four of our favorite Inside Influence episodes of all time. Now, I can also hand on heart say that each of these four episodes has in some way radically changed how I now show up, lead, and influence. If you're new to the Inside Influence crew, enjoy the ride. If you are a long-time listener, these are definitely conversations that are worth listening to for a second time. Stay safe, and we will see you back with our brand new season in August. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds and the psyches of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. When you think about that last part, about moments where someone has used their influence to drive a nation, a few iconic moments will probably come to mind for all of us. Moments where one person stood up and through their own human story, united a tribe of people behind an audacious idea. Now, of course, I'm thinking of speeches like Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream, Winston Churchill's We Shall Fight Them on the Beaches. Now, these are all just words, or they started out all just words. Or at best, they were impassioned cries for action and change from one person's heart to another. But from those words, a tidal wave of change was created. And so that's what we're diving into with today's guest. The power that words, stories and presentations can have on an idea and an igniting a groundswell underneath it. My next guest is the CEO and founder of Silicon Valley's largest and most successful communications firm, Duarte Inc. Nancy Duarte herself. Now, Nancy has spent the last 30 years immersed in the world of human storytelling and has been behind the scenes of some of the most compelling speeches we have ever seen, or as she calls them, impassioned pleas. I love that. Including Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. More on that later. She has worked with thought leaders of global brands like Apple, Cisco, Facebook, GE, Google, HP. Ted. It just goes on and on and on. She is a renowned author also and has books that have shaped the way many of my own clients and people I respect now communicate, including Illumination, Resonate, and the Communications Bible Slideology. Jump on Amazon, check them all out. They are all worth buying at least three times. She has been the master of the crazy world of presenting since way before speaking was even cool, before TED and back in the days of projectors and death by PowerPoint. On a personal note, when I, if I look back, when I started my very first business with a business partner, it was a speaker management company, a talent management agency for professional speakers. And again, that was back in the day before speaking was cool. You would literally only do it on fear of death. And even then, you'd probably take death most of the time. And I literally so viscerally remember sitting at my kitchen table trying to think about how I would get people excited about this, about why I was so passionate about ideas, about words, about storytelling as a force. And I wrote one thing down, not joking, one thing on a piece of paper, and it said, the right idea at the right time, when delivered authentically, has the power to change everything. Now I have gone back to that statement countless times, and I know in my DNA, that it is true because I have seen it play out now of stages of thousands, digital platforms of millions. And I would remind my team of it and myself of it every time, you know, the going got a little bit tough. 
And so when I heard of a kindred spirit, when I heard that there was a woman who put together something that I am a huge fan of, which is Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, the presentation that literally turned the tide on how the world felt about climate change, I knew I had to meet her. And so when we started this podcast, she was top of my list. I stalked her. She was very kind about the stalking. And she patiently and kindly agreed to come on and be a guest. Now, in this conversation, we cover some serious ground. So I suggest you grab your notebook, your iPad, an envelope, I don't care, a post-it note, whatever you can lay your hands on. Because we explore the one pattern that the world's greatest speeches have in common. Seriously, there is one. She has studied all the world's greatest speeches, every single speech that had game-changing, world-changing impact, and they all follow the same structure. Now, that is a structure you need to know about. We cover the power of using contrast when building frenzy behind an idea. How do you harness resistance and use it to propel your idea forward further than it could have gone without it? How to create action on the back of any presentation by illuminating a new path, or as she would call it, creating a new bliss. And finally, why we sabotage our own ideas and how to let the struggle, rather than destroy us or keep us small or silent, actually transform us. So think of this as a masterclass in how to convey an idea in its most potent form, whether that's across a boardroom table, a kitchen table, or a lectern. After this hour, I promise you, you will have access to some of the world's most powerful tools. So this is me and Nancy Duarte very much geeking out over the power of storytelling. Sit back, enjoy, and take it for everything that is worth. Welcome to the podcast, Nancy Duarte. <laughs> Thank you. Did I say that right? Yeah, you did. <laughs> um, Thank you so much for, for being on, on the podcast. I'm going to kick off with the same question I always kick off with. And there's a reason I kick off with this question, and that is because, and actually, I'm sure you've come across this before as well. I feel like there's a story out there that in order to be influential, in order to make an impact, in order to get up and speak in front of people, share your stories, that you need to be an extrovert. And... I'm firstly interested, do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? And secondly, have you found that as well? Um, I am squarely in the extrovert category, um, but I'm married to an introvert. My son is an introvert. So all the girls in my family are extroverts. All the boys are introverts. And what's interesting is I can, I could be like, oh, could you speak at Monday morning staff meeting? I'm like, sure, I'll drum something up. Well, ex an introvert would never say that. They would, they would want to have something carefully planned, something thoughtfully made, something delivered in a way that's empathetic and, and, and careful. So what's interesting is my husband, he um, kind of semi-retired, started to paint at home and do all these things. And he just wasn't as visible in the company. And so I'm like this arms flailing, hummingbird communicator, passionate, blah, 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 blah. And um, we had a really critical piece of communication and my husband delivered it. And people were like, would they missed him, number one. But the biggest thing is they were like, wow, he's just so eloquent and careful and not um, excited. And he's just fluid and compassionate. <laughs> and it was at first I was like, uh, kind of hurt my feelings. <laughs> I own it, but it was beautiful, like how he worded things, even his posture and how he stood. It was just so different. And I think people needed a yin to my yang a little bit here internally. They were just hungry for that. But you will not get an introvert that is not a careful communicator. They just won't wing it. And I think that extroverts sometimes try to lean on their charisma or lean on their extrovert extroversion and think that that can substitute for content and it doesn't like you an introvert will always come to the table with content and an extrovert doesn't always I've also noticed that introverts I hate massive generalizations but the introverts that I know in my experience they tend to be because of the introverted nature they sit back and they listen like they, they observe, they are beautiful observers, they're beautiful listeners. And because of that, when they do come forward and they say something, it's, as you said, it's so eloquent, it's so spot on because they've done nothing but, yeah, they've yeah. been done nothing but watch. Yeah. 
And my son is like, if there was a scale to introversion, he's on the hermit side. <laughs> That's my so husband. So when, when, you know, we've got all these like hummingbirds at the table, yip, 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 just carelessly flicking things around. And my son, I've learned that I, if I count to seven Mississippi, like one Mississippi, two, he will, he will take that amount of time to frame what he wants to say in the most beautiful, perfect way. So it took me discipline to shut my own mouth up enough to give him the space he needed to craft what he'd been thinking the whole time. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm real big on, um, I'm madly in love with all my introverts and they just need us to take a breath every once in a while. (laughs) Now you had said everyone can lead without being loud, which fits into what we were just saying just then. And, and I think the importance of that statement coming from you and you've worked with a lot of the, the high caliber leaders that we see up there on the stages, a lot of the ones that we see as the charisma, as the, as the volume of a company, the voice of a company. But you really believe that. You really believe everybody can lead and it doesn't necessitate being loud. I agree. I, I think that's one of the things that I, I agree with it in practice. In theory, I don't see it in practice very often. But it's one of the things I loved. Um, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, it's an old one, but classic. And he said a level five leader can contend, but they also tended to be these more humble um, they lead, you know, they lead through serving, they, they, they lead through um, a different kind of a display of leadership than I think is um, modeled very often. Um, but for sure, I do believe that the strong leaders are the ones that, that are careful at framing things and show, exhibit a kind of wisdom that an extrovert doesn't even have as a practice many times. That's so true. Um, all right, well, I'm going to move straight through to your area of expertise, passion, experience, genius. You, you said this thing, which, which, which I thought was so funny and so true. You said you were fired up by presentations before it was cool <laughs> to be fired up by presentations. And I just, I kind of went, yeah. Like, I mean, I've been doing this for close to 20 years now, you know, before there was a TED and before, there were, before to present was a cool thing and when it was kind of a nerdy thing. And it was ugly, like even the software create as a default created really ugly stuff, uh, you know, and you had to, you had to chisel back in the olden days, you had to chisel PowerPoint to make it even look decent. Um, we started on it when it was just in black and white. I was 30 years for me. I'm 10 years more into it than you. So... And also when you had the the projector, when you, had, you know, when you had to put the transparency onto the projector. Yeah, we had a uh, we had this crummy, crummy little apartment with terrible yellow shag carpet, but we had a seventeen thousand dollar machine that would take and create a slide, a thirty five millimeter slide out of uh, PowerPoint at the time is what we used. Yeah, so we were like poor, pitiful poor, but we made this massive investment to be able to image thirty five millimeter slides. <laughs> cutting edge of storytelling at that point so so tell me I mean I know my why but I want to know yours why why were you what is it about presentations what is it about the art and the act of that that fires you up so much you know I think um I think that uh you know, we started with extroversion for starters. I'm just not, I don't have a lot of fear of standing up and speaking, but um, more importantly, so many for thousands and thousands of years, stories and truths and morals were passed down through the spoken word. I mean, we only became a literate world a couple hundred years ago. So somehow massive amounts of religious beliefs, political um, beliefs, everything was passed down verbally. And you really can't point to a movement that didn't start with some sort of an impassioned plea. And I've said in the past that we're a bit in the impassioned plea business in so many ways, because so many movements and um, causes and and even big businesses move forward because of um, the spoken word. So to be, to believe, like I believe in my heart that things form out of nothing from the spoken word. I mean, I just believe that deep, deep inside of me. So to be able to speak something out of nothing and be the experts at that, where you speak something out and then it becomes reality in a month or two months or six months, it just moves me. Um, I just don't want eyeballs and clicks and emails opened. I don't want to count those things. You know, I want to like, I just, I just had a meeting with a guy from Dubai who came all the way out here to tell me that he is now CEO of a massive insurance company because of my body of work, right? Around the spoken word and how he convinced the board he was the right guy. 
what a day. Like, what a, what a way to kick off my morning, you know? Just this, he did an impassioned plea to be CEO and he's transforming the insurance business in Dubai. That's a great way to start the day. So I think people just didn't understand its power, I think, for a long time. And to be at the forefront of all of that is just a blessing. It's an honor, really, to serve in this space. But also, I think the storytelling is, in my experience, the only way, and I'd love to hear yours, the only way to create emotion and empathy is through storytelling. You know, I share my world with you. If you go back to around the campfire, two warring tribes, you know, I share my world with you. You share your world with me. And then there's a point of engagement, a point of emotional connection. And that's usually from that place, the only way that we ever take action, the only way that we ever agree to change something is from that place. And I have never found another way to get to that place mm. other than through storytelling. I love, I love, you're, like we're in parallel universes here because we've been doing a lot of experimentation around storytelling. So now that they can hook up the fMRI machines to the brain and watch what's happening while a story is being told, one of the reasons we make connections is that all of the sensing part of our brains light up and they light up in the same order. The storyteller, the story listener is just firing at the same time and in the same way. So you're having an, a literal physical experience mm-hmm. of the story as it's happening, as mm-hmm. if it were happening to yes. you. And it's exactly firing in the same way. So I'm, I've got a universe, a really a pretty spectacular university um, that's wanting to actually take this kind of story framework in a whole, in a whole new level. But we've been doing our own more qualitative experimentation around it, where we're hosting. Well, for five years, we've done a thing here called Speak Up at my own shop, where eight people tell an eight-minute story. It's a private story. It's a personal story. We don't broadcast it. I mean, you are laughing. You're crying. You just, you're bonding. It's just purely bonding. That's the only thing. I mean, you know, it's not moving my company forward. It's not, it's not a big discovery like turning a chicken into a dinosaur like Ted talks about. This is like my grandpa fell in love with a woman and she was a gypsy and she ripped off a million dollars or whatever. Like whatever the story is, we've had crazy stories. It was, in, and then what was crazy is when that story was done being told, all of a sudden at the very end of the evening, this gal, she's like screaming. They actually caught the woman while she was giving her talk. It was incredible. <laughs> like it's just these things happen. So then we took it from the stage and we decided to turn it into a story circle in my home where eight people will tell a four minute story and they all know each other. And then can you have eight people that don't know each other? And do you feel the same kind of closeness? And you kind of measure it. And then you have, mm, if you have eight CMOs that are the same title, but different companies do they what's their brain doing? like you know what is really going on as you create these moments that are so effervescent that you'll never forget them as long as you live because not only did I fall in love with you as you told your story but the two people sitting on either side of me that experienced your story with me I feel a bond to them to them too so there's this there's this bonding and this emotional connection that's unparalleled under any other form of communication that I know of Yet, so many executives struggle to adopt it because part of the nature of a story is life is hard. Hey, I'm this likable person. Life was hard. And I went through this thing and here's how I overcame it. Now, a lot of people don't want to go there. You have to give them permission to go there. You have to make them feel safe to go there. And um, so that's why this concept of leadership stories and leader storytelling is very important to me. Um, we, my chief strategist and co-author talked talked one of the um, CEOs of a public company to just tell one story and almost not even tell the whole thing, but hint at it. He always stood up, beat his chest. I was amazing at this other public company and then this other public company. I was amazing. And now here I'm amazing. And she said, I want you to stand up and tell a time you failed. And he told a very short, brief, maybe only 30, 40 seconds of a time he failed. The reaction from the audience, from all the employees. He said it was his best talk he ever did. (laughs) And he just told a story where he failed. And um, it's crazy how we feel like, oh, they're not infallible either. I'm not, I'm not infallible. Therefore, we're alike, you know, and leaders want to be on some sort of untouchable pedestal, make it seem like life isn't hard. And life, you know, life is hard. But you can also feel that in, in the room, you know, from a from a professional speaking standpoint, when it's tangible, when someone gets on stage and they do what you just call the chest beating thing, and you can feel the whole room move backwards a number of inches. And then there's a moment where they talk, talk about what didn't work, or a moment they fell over and they got back up, or a moment where they just didn't know what to do, or 
even more incredibly the fact that sometimes right now here today I often don't know what to do and you feel the room come forwards five or six inches because it's like oh my I feel like that that's me there are sometimes I don't know what I'm doing what do you, what do you what do you do in those moments how, how do you handle them there's an engagement that comes and there's this actual beautiful word if I ever had a tattoo it would be this word and you know my 40th birthday is coming up and it's not off the agenda um there's this beautiful word called duende and duende is a Spanish word and there's no literal English translation but the closest you can get is it's a word to describe when a flamenco dancer takes to the stage and the flamenco dancer walks on and they stand there and they stand very still and quietly for, for the first few moments and then the Spanish would say then the duende arrives and it's this moment where a sense of gravity comes over them but in order to let the duende arrive, to let the duende come in, they speak of it like almost like a tree elf. In order to let it come in, you have to be willing to let something die. And I just think going back to what you were saying then about the leadership, you have to be, if you're gonna engage people to the full capacity of what you're capable of doing, you need to be willing to let something die, even if it's that veneer of, I am perfect. I always make perfect decisions. I love that. And I am amazing 24 hours a day. I love that because, I mean, even Steve Jobs has a quote that, you know, nothing can begin unless something else ends. You can't have a new beginning without something ending. You know, die is a strong word. I love this story. There's a guy here in the Valley who runs uh, Google X. His name's Astro Teller. And um, so he's constantly, they're constantly inventing like weather balloons. Oh my God, do you think this will happen? They'll just like shoot something there and see what happens. I mean, they're just inventing, inventing, inventing all the time. And it's part of Google. It's the X in the alphabet of Google. And he's just got this team that just thinks so far out the box and so far out ahead that they create so many ideas that he realized people get attached to their ideas and that he needed to, that they're like, remember that thing I shot in the air? Is that still happening? Right. And so he takes Dia de los Muertos, which is a um, Mexican holiday at Dia de los Muertos. And they build this altar and they dance around the altar and they celebrate the death of all the ideas they came up with. And it's beautiful. Like, it's not a bad thing. They're celebrating the day of the dead ideas, you know? And I, and I, you're right. Like we hang on to things for too long. We don't let ourselves move forward unless we actually acknowledge this is ended. This is over. This is done. I'm separating myself from that. In my book, Illuminate, I spent a lot of time studying that because there's ceremony in endings that you can't begin again without an ending. And so at the end of initiatives at a company, you need to, sometimes they just fizzle out and that frustrates employees more than declaring it as dead (laughs) or, you know, and it's a communication mechanism, the rites of passage and also endings and beginnings where you very clearly say this is over or we won or we lost, you know, whatever was the ending, good or bad, we need endings so we can move forward. I love that. Nobody's ever talked about that. Now, I'm going, to keep, I'm going to keep us moving because I have so much to ask you about. You have such an incredible body of work. So you have built speeches for some of the world's, world's greatest, literally the world's greatest. But what I love about your journey, the beginnings of that journey, is it started with a question, which again is a, is a question that has occurred to me many times, but I never spent the time and energy that you have put in to answer it, which is why do we love stories so much but presentations flatline? Yeah, I love that question. Actually, what's weird is I I asked myself that question after the company had been in business for about 18 years. Um, And I was just sick of it. Like you go through phases of like, okay, now this is really, um, we had kind of fixed the slides themselves. Like it was like, okay, we already had tackled it. We already released a book and people were starting to get that the slides were bad. But then I saw that the actual content, it didn't matter how great your slides were. If your content was bad, you, you just did a terrible job. And it, it always baffled me. I remember when my kids were little, we were happened to be in this little town in Southern Cal called Solvang. And there happened to be this weird, bizarre storytelling event there. And we went and we took our kids. And I remember thinking, I have not been this engaged in the spoken word in a long time. And they were just telling story after story after story. And 
that kind of started me on an early journey through why did that hour and a half pass by, but I can't stand to sit through an hour long meeting with a presentation. And um, I went on a journey through storytelling. I'm a pattern finder. I'm a systems thinker. So I looked at every kind of framework. There's screenwriting frameworks. There's Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey framework, which is an 18-part story structure. Sid Field has a three-act story structure that uh, follows um, screenwriting. I looked at everything from screenwriting software to, I mean, I just went like a crazy freak. Um, and I just wanted to see what are all the patterns? What are all the inflection points? What happens when at the climax of it? What happens at the down, like the ill fate, the good fate? Like, how do you map it on? What are all the ways that have been mapped and why have presentations not been mapped? Because I knew that really good speeches, when you listen to them, they have a cadence and they have a rhythm and they have a beauty to them that is just as great as a story, but I couldn't figure it out. And I decided that to use two great speeches, I used Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, and I took Steve Jobs's iPhone launch speech, because I thought, if whatever I find is true, it should work for commerce, and it should work for causes. And so I just I just had those speeches practically memorized. Steve Jobs's is 90 minutes, but I had them I knew them so well that once I found the pattern, I knew, I knew I found the pattern. I was in my office. I told my husband, it was a Saturday morning. I'm like, today I'm going to draw the shape. I know I'm going to draw the shape. You went out in golf and I'm going to draw the shape. And I remember I figured out what that pulse and cadence was. And I, 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 first thing I did is I fell on my knees and thanks. And then the second thing I did is I looked up Hitler, Mussolini and Goebbels who wrote most of Hitler's speeches. And I looked at their speeches and they followed the form too. And almost a sense of gravity and caution came over me where I thought, wow, this comes with a lot of responsibility because this works for good and for evil. And it's true, right? It, when you're persuasive and you get people to feel what you're saying, you could use it for evil. And so it was really, um, sober was should have been this moment where I was like dancing around and it was very sober very humble um and it, it was it, it was a it was probably one of the more kind of sacred moments I've had in my career where it was I had to weigh the price of of, of you know releasing this um but it's been all used for good that I know of <laughs> but still no I think it's a it's a massive point I'm actually just sit, sitting back thinking about that because it is anybody who works in the amplification business you know for me I had a talent management agency for many years and we had to think very carefully and we did I can honestly say we did think very carefully about the people that we signed and the messages that we chose to amplify we kept I kept a big sign up on the wall it was an electronic you know those electronic picture frames oh yeah I have one we just got one yeah Every week, so we would, sometimes we would have 80 to 100 presentations going on in the world any given week, and we would add up all the audience members because we'd have to get how many people were going to be in the audience before each one. And every week we would update that number as to how many people we, we had reached on a cumulative basis since the business had started. And that number, talking about rituals, that number was an attempt to keep us very anchored in the business that we are in. You know, we are in the business of spreading ideas. And if you're in that business, you'd better be really sober about the ideas that you are consciously spreading because there's money to be made in every in every avenue and often more money to be made in those that have a negative impact, unfortunately. Yeah. So you'd better be really sober about the ideas. Yeah, I love that. That you're choosing to you're choosing to spread. And the other thing that I had chills when I when I heard you talk about this the first time that it felt like because you as you said you shaped out you drew a shape a form for a presentation that makes the largest amount of impact and mapped it and checked it and the fact that you felt it as a shape it it had always felt like a melody to me you know whenever I'd heard, heard a presentation one that worked one that didn't work a message that got through that didn't go through it was almost like a conductor listening. There was a melody to it, which is essentially a shape as well. You know, it's it's notes on a page. It's a shape. And I had never heard anybody else talk about it that way until I, I heard you talking about it as a, having a shapeliness wow. to it. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. There's a rhythm, isn't there? There's yeah. a rhythm, there's a cadence to it. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, My son is a classical composer. He's just this genius 
boy. And um, I had him take the visual language I used for the spark lines and apply it toward the sonata form. So the sonata form in classical music is a three-act story structure also. And yet a sonata from Beethoven is very different than a sonata from Mozart. It's it's within the same form. So I called it a form instead of a formula because people want to try to make it a formula and it's not. And um, so he did this beautiful job of explaining um, multiple dimensions of music and visualized it for me in the form of a spark line and, and the three-act structure. And you can actually watch a Mozart and you can watch a um, Beethoven sonata. I have them online in my online version of Resonate where you can actually listen to it and it's so beautiful. And so I think that's why I feel that it is very much like you're saying classical music where you almost feel like even though it's one person speaking, it's like they're joined with harmonies and melodies and there's this beauty and rhythm to it when it's done really well. Um, that's really unparalleled of any other form of communication. So mm. I'm glad you see that. And you've got the, you've got the, when it increases in pace, when it speeds up and it gets more yeah. intense and more dramatic. And then you've got the moments of power when it slows right down yep. and becomes still. Yeah. And that is exactly the same when you see someone on stage. Yep. You need the both. Uh-huh. You need the both. So walk us through the structure. We're talking about this this form right now. Mm-hmm. Is there a way of just walking us through what that looks like for yeah. anybody who's thinking, okay, if there's this perfect form. Tell me what it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a persuasive story form. Um, basically, it's kind of like pumpkin teeth if you carve <laughs> pumpkin, but it's a, um, it starts with a line on the bottom and you establish what is. Um, and then, and then you the human brain is hardwired for contrast all day long. We're contrasting like, Oh, that thing moved. Am I safe? Oh, am I like them? Am I different from them all day long? We're processing contrast, contrast, contrast. So what you're going to do is you're going to use this persuasive structure to create so much contrast that when you describe the current realities and contrast them with the bright hope of the future, your current realities are not appealing and, and the future opportunity is alluring. And so it's a structural device where you move between, you spend some time explaining what is, and then you explain what could be. But here's our reality. Oh, look what could be. Oh, here's where we are today. But just think about this other, but reframe it in your mind as this, you know, and you move back and forth. And by the time you're done, they don't know why, but suddenly they're not as comfortable with the status quo and they want to join your movement and make sure your ideas become reality. So it's definitely um, a format that works. You also talked about something else, which I think is, is vitally important for anybody that's looking at to building a compelling story, a, a compelling presentation, a compelling message. And you said that one of the patterns you noticed is that the hero archetype is broken. And I just thought, oh, thank God, thank God somebody has said that out loud. Um, so to translate what that means, the the myth that it, it is about me if I'm on stage it has to be about me then that sounds very egotistical but actually it's the opposite it has the impact of it isn't some people blow up like a gorilla when they think that but the majority of the time we freeze and we get terrified oh my god this is all about me they're all staring at me they all want to know what I think and you said that that's fundamentally broken the presenter isn't the hero the audience is the hero and if you flip that in your mind then you do a, a compelling presentation. You said, you know, you are not Luke Skywalker. Yeah. You are Yoda. Yeah. And I felt like putting that on a t-shirt. You are not Luke Skywalker. <laughs> you are you Yoda. know, Yoda was a Jedi master for like eight, 900 years total. But I think by the time he saw Luke, he'd been doing it for a good 800 years, right? So he'd been in, he'd walked in Luke Skywalker's shoes for a very, very long time. And that's what made him qualified to coach another Jedi but, you know, into becoming something great. And I think what happens is we do get nervous when we have to present. We did spend hours and sometimes weeks creating it. So we are obsessing about it quite a bit. But what happens is when we make it all about ourselves, it creates distance between us and the audience. And if you don't deliver it in a really compelling way, your idea is going to die. So those people in that room are the heroes of your idea. They're the ones that will latch onto it and make it reality. So if you don't change your framework, you walk in there like, I'm badass, I'm awesome, Uh, do this for me, they're not going to. (laughs) So you have to humbly defer to them. They hold all the power in the room, all the power. They hold all the power to make your idea um, reality or to reject it. And I think that mindset 
um, is important, not only for presenting, but consumer marketing, how you approach your customers. You know, we think that they, oh, my customers need me more and I need them. And that's such a slippery slope and terrible position to be in. You just have to be really um, careful when you think you're something that you're not. It's a, it's a slippery place to become and to be. And also the, the reframing, the reframing of it from what do I want to tell you, you know, being from, from me out, what do I want to tell you? And the reframe, because again, that can be paralyzing and also not, not engaging, bottom line truth. But reframing is the what's the one thing that I could give you or tell you that would be useful enough for you to be able to do something about it? And, you know, reframing it that way, what, what could I give you that would be useful and engaging enough for you to want to take action? Yeah, I think, too, um, from all the research I did, uh, in myths and in movies, literature, the, the mentor does three things. They come alongside the hero. They're not the hero. They come alongside the hero. They do three things. They help them get unstuck or they bring them a magical gift or a special tool. When people, when you're done presenting, people should feel that way about you. Wow, I'm unstuck or, whoa, I had this new tool or wow, this is a magical gift, you know, they should feel that way. And then, you know, you did the role of the mentor. Um, but if they're frustrated, if they don't want to go, they want to entrench, you might not have done as good of a job. You talk about, you talk about resistance and the fear that we, that we all have any, any single person that's ever stood up and said something out loud in front of other people. And that is the, the fear of what will come back, that someone will disagree um, that someone will, will, will fight a point or will know more than me. And you talk about dealing with that resistance. And again, I'd never heard it worded this way. And it's just beautiful. You, using that resistance almost as a boat uses the wind. My husband and I actually were wee pups and we fell in love on a sailboat. So I think that has a lot of emotional value to me. But you, you, when you put the sail up, you actually, you know, harness the wind, which is technically resistance. But what's really interesting is when you're going into the wind, you can go faster the wind than the wind itself. There's a physics phenomenon that makes you go faster than the wind itself. That's crazy, right? To harness resistance and go faster than the wind itself. So metaphorically, what happens is using that as a metaphor to when we communicate, if you spend time brainstorming all the different ways that people are going to resist, like, well, they might question my credibility. Well, I did a project like this that failed last time. Well, uh, the way it was structured, they didn't want it done that way. And, you know, you can think of all these ways that they might resist and not adopt your idea. Well, if I maybe, and this has happened here internally, where I roll out a program and they maybe didn't like the way it was structured or the process was cumbersome or something like that. If I say, hey, I'm, I, we're doing this. I realize it's going to feel like Groundhog, Groundhog's Day to you, but I want to tell you, I heard you last time. Last time I did it, I did this, 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 and it failed. This time to address that, I'm going to do this, 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 this. Please give me feedback because I really want everyone to buy in the process and I want to hear you. Blah, blah, blah. That's so different than it's just a different way to approach resistance. You know, they could walk away and be, you know, backstabby. Blah, 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 I can't believe it. But I addressed it, you know, apologized for a failure, de dealt with it straight on. And it it like inoculates them or uh, anesthetizes them, I guess, to the um, um the resistance that they may throw up if you actually think through it, um, all the little uh, barriers that they put up. If you think through it, embedded into your talk, then you're harnessing their resistance and using it to actually get traction. So using using the resistance to go faster. Yeah, and I've just I've heard about dealing with resistance, but the way that most people would ad would address dealing with resistance is it's like a rock you have to climb over. It's going to slow you down, but you, you can get over it. And you're saying quite the opposite. It's not a rock you need to climb over it's a wind you can harness to move faster i love i love that um i have a a small obsession it's not really small it's, it's pretty large um with al gore's and inconvenient <laughs> yeah i'm i just i've used it as a case study i don't know how many times and the reason i mean you would know why i'm obsessed because you were part of the creation of of that presentation which I'm dying to hear more about. The, the reason for my obsession is 
that I know that the prior to An Inconvenient Truth, the scientific community have been trying to get our attention about climate change for a very long time with stats and reports and research papers and, and it had gone pretty much just nowhere. You know, Al Gore, Al Gore gets up and tells a one hour, I think it was, compelling story and it spreads like wildfire. And they had said that, you know, an inconvenient truth has had a much greater impact on public opinion of global climate change than any scientific paper or report. And that came out of the scientific community. And there was a 50%, see, I'm nerding out on this now. There's a 50% increase in the purchase of voluntary carbon offsets in any area where that movie was shown. So 50% of people took actual financial action as a result of seeing it. I had not heard that that statistic. That's amazing. Yeah. I had not heard that. That is a massive impact massive impact and you had said the only difference between those that create action and those that don't are the way they are communicated so why you know in everything that you know and being part of that whole process of building an inconvenient truth why do you believe it was so powerful as powerful as it was you know it's funny because we worked with him for four years before it was a movie so he um i don't know if you remember after the election there was all this news and he'd been out sailing around on a boat and he had this great big beard and they were giving him all kinds of you know grief about how he looked but he he went out on that boat and he's like what what do I want to do with my life? You know, what am I going to do? And he remembered that he'd had, he'd run around with this 35 millimeter um, slide carousel in the seventies, just passionate about climate change and decided he was going to pursue that again. So part of it is when you have a leader that feels like the message they have is like a calling, it, that makes a big difference right there. It's a calling at this point now, he'd accomplished so much and now he, now he just needed to do what he felt called to do. And so that was part of it. So for four years, what um, people don't realize, so we actually got that slide deck and slide carousel and scanned in a bunch of his old stuff, but he wanted it to be multimedia. He wanted it to be, you know, obviously more interesting, but for four years, he traveled around the country to these high kind of oddly high net worth places. He would hold these big uh, people's private homes. I mean, he delivered it everywhere. He delivered it at the Stanford um, Auditorium. He would go to these places and he would get really influential people in those areas to host him and to and to bring him in to do one of these talks and fill up these little, uh, you know, regional um, auditoriums. So by the time it was a movie, he'd already created a groundswell. He'd already had a lot of interest in a lot of local communities, and this the movie just kind of popped open this groundswell to to kind of exit the surface of the earth because there was this pent up um, commitment right through these um, man. I don't even know. That's why he was so good in the movie. He delivered it so many times. He was so comfortable delivering it at that point. He did really well. Um, delivering it in the movie um and so he that is what a movement makes like we looked at a lot of um in my last book illuminate we spent a lot of time looking at um, a lot of the speeches that dr king made during uh, during his movement um and there were speeches where he was trying to encourage his troops there were speeches where he was doing all these different uh, things that people needed as emotional fuel um, during the movement. So once the movie was done, he actually brought people to his home in Carthage, um, Tennessee, and trained them to deliver the presentation. So he empowered his enthusiasts, his evangelists, um, to also turn right around and keep the momentum going. So the movie I look at is more like a flashpoint to a ton of seeds, a ton of pressure that had built under the surface, and it just kind of popped it all open. I don't know. That's not really what you were asking, but that's my kind of long perspective of of how we, my team got to do this, like hop on his jet and fly to Oprah with him and stuff like that to get him ready for the Oprah show. I mean, how many people get to say they do stuff like that? Um, so it was a lot of not many, not many. It was very fun <laughs> for my team. He calls his mom from the cab like uh, pulling up to Harpo Studios, mom. You know, it's funny. But um yeah, it was a real honor to do that. And um, what was kind of interesting about the movie is um, there's not very many movies that end in what I would call inconclusive. There's tragic movies, there's happy ending movies, you know, comedy, tragedy kind of things. But Inconvenient Truth was what I would call an inconclusive story structure. It built up all this tension in you and then it 
it basically just gave you a list at the end of things you could do to help, right? Which means when a, when a story is inconclusive, it means it's not really concluded yet. And the people who attend the movie get to determine whether it ends as a comedy or a tragedy. And I think that was some of the power of it um, was that the people need to determine how the story ends. That is so true. I never thought about it that way, that the inconclusiveness of it was part of its power and actually leads me nicely on to my next question which was you said great presentations illuminate a path you know you wrote a book called illuminate and I know that this is a big passion for you in my language I would call that ending on purpose you know you you end on purpose because what tends to happen is that often you know we watch this amazing presentation I watched a documentary on whales recently and you you watch it and you're all fired up at the end and you think okay right I'm, I'm in just tell me what I need to do and I'm there and it ends with nothing no path forward no way to help no simple things that I can do in my daily busy life that I can actually contribute to the to the movement that you are trying to create you you use Steve Jobs as an example a lot for this and you said that he he ends by creating a new bliss which is just such powerful language you talk about what is it what is ending with a new bliss yeah I like um I like where you're going with this and I think you use really lovely language I think ending on purpose is really important I think sometimes um, when I attend TED, I get TED fatigue because they get you, oh my God, these monkeys, oh my God, they're in the tree, oh my God. And then you, they're, they're not allowed to end on purpose. Like you can't say, and for only $49 a month, you could save these monkeys or whatever, right? You're just not allowed to do it. And so you can, no, I know many TED curators and they would be a big fat no. Yeah. And I remember the first time I went, I, I like by Wednesday, I was, I was like, okay, I don't want to go to a party. I don't even want to eat a morsel. I'm going to crawl up in the fetal position on my bed and just maybe cry myself to sleep and then I'll be fine in the morning, you know, but people want to, when you've really moved people, they want to do something. And so what the new bliss is, is so many people end their talk, say with the call to action, like for $49.99 a month, you could, you know, and you, sh you shouldn't end there. I think that's the marketer's way to end a great, um, you know, a great marketing piece would end with a call to action. But after you give the call to action and say you can help by this thing, then you state the new bliss. And this is this is what the world looks like with your idea adopted. This is how the world will be different if we make this choice, you know. And there's great leaders. Like one of my favorites was uh, Nehru. He was the prime minister and he gave a speech in India the night that India was freed from British rule. It's one of my favorite speeches. It was called A Tryst with Destiny. It's like their I Have a Dream speech. And he did the most, he, he basically poetically made a vow and a covenant with his beloved motherland. And it was just beautiful. It was like, and it would painted a picture of what, what he, that he's going to do to serve her. And it was, and how it's going to look once she is served well. It was just so Oh, utterly, I love it already. Utterly beautiful. And so many times people need to end with hope. You know, we we need to feel hope or we won't um, we won't want to contribute. And so it is just a beautiful way to end by saying, you know, Apple's was um, at the end of his iPhone talk, he promised Steve Jobs promised revolutionary new products in the future. We've done that from the very, very beginning, and we always will. That's the new bliss. You think this was amazing? Just wait. We always will give you amazing products. And um, that was kind of his promise right after he launched the iPhone, you know, which is kind of spectacular. So the greatest speeches do end. Um, Martin Luther King, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty I'm free at last, right? It was like this, this is our future. This is the way it's going to look. Um, when we're truly free, his whole refrain at the end was just unbelievably beautiful. So I just think you need to end creating longing by painting a picture of a of a different and an alternate future than they than they currently live. You had said we we hit the struggle and then we stop. <clears throat> so as we get towards the end of the interview, I wanted to just talk about that very briefly. We hit the struggle and then we stop. We sabotage our own ideas instead of choosing to let the struggle transform us. What does that mean? I mean, I have a sense of what it means, but for you in your words, what does that mean? I think that um, when you, ha like I, I have this happen to me sometimes when I have an idea 
Um, and I know in my gut it's the right thing to do, but kind of it's funny because we started the conversation this way, but, you know, some extrovert with their hand on their hip that, that maybe I've paid money to do a role, <laughs> you know, says I know better. I, I will sabotage my own idea and defer. And sometimes I think the bigger ideas, the ones that are the most world-changing, we have to fight hard for, we have to contend for. Like the amount of times in my 30 years, even recently I had an experience where I was like, oh, maybe I'm not the right one to lead this version of the Duarte idea forward, right? Start to self-select out. I had to fight hard even with my own identity and who I, what, how I perceive myself because the next, say, reinvention of where presenting's going is going to get very interesting. And, um, and so you have to um, struggle through. I would say it's p- pushing through the roadblocks, pushing through everything that says you can't, pushing through and making sure you really, really believe it to the point of being called. Because um, sometimes the scale of some of the ideas that people need to bring forth don't come without a struggle. And it's not like it's not like everything's paved for us, like a, a little paver lands right in front of us and then we put our precious little slipper on it and we just walk through life in a dainty way. It's messy. It's dirty. There's mud slinging. You know, it's just messy. And and you have to build muscles and discipline that you never dreamed you had to do once you start to lead people um, toward an idea that you really believe in. And um, I'm almost preaching to my choir right now. <laughs> I, it's good. This is good because I'm in a season where I'm like, you know, should I, should I not? How hard should I have to fight for this? Because to me, if you think, oh, this is true, this is right, I know this is the direction. As leaders, you think, well, that's self-evident. If it's self-evident to me, everyone, sh- it should be self-evident to everyone, you know? And then sometimes, you know, you, when you start to convey it, you realize, what? This plain truth is going to be a struggle? Like, and I don't even know why sometimes I'm still shocked within my own organization, things that seem... Like, this is an obvious next step um, because I spend so much time in the future thinking about that. For other people, they're still in the present and it's a disruption to their present day. Um, And we have to work hard to contend with the struggle to make sure that our ideas get adopted. How has has storytelling transformed you? I, uh, my whole life now, I as a coping mechanism, story frameworks work for me. So if I'm having a bad day, I just say, oh, it's the messy middle. It'll resolve. Like I just, it's like a coping mechanism now. Um, When in one of my favorite things, there's two things that were in Hero's Journey, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, uh, that didn't make it in my book, yet I notice I'm latching onto those more than almost anything. One of the phases in Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey is that every protagonist goes into what he calls their inmost cave. Uh, St. John of the Cross calls it the dark night of the soul. And there's a moment in the journey where it just gets so hard. We were just kind of talking about that, where the struggle is so real. You have to go inward and say, is the risk worth the reward? Do I want to stay in this journey or do I want to jump out? And our employees and, and constituents, they ask themselves that every day. Do I really want to keep following Nancy on this hard journey or do I want to jump out? So that is a coping mechanism for me. Not only do I recognize when someone else is in the dark night of the soul, but I go there myself and I look at my own life and I weigh like, hmm, should I just jump out of this? Because we overcommit. But I also know that I have to sometimes go to this place, kind of like what Al Gore did on the boat, and really, really go inward and recommit. And I love that. Um, That part has changed me. And another thing that's a lesser talked about story facet is there's another moment in storytelling where the protagonist will put on the skin of their enemy. Um, Like in Wizard of Oz, in the old version of Wizard of Oz, they actually put on the, um, I can't remember what the creatures are called, but they put on the the gear of the um, um, army that marched at the Witch of the West's castle they dressed up put on their outfits and got entrance into the castle in avatar uh, jake put on a blue he became blue and understood them so this concept of put on the skin of your enemy has been a metaphor for me for empathy um uh, dustin hoffman when he signed up for tootsie he said he did this fantastic interview where he cried through it and he said tootsie was not a comedy for me and he said when he put on that woman's outfit 
and they said, that's as beautiful as you would ever be as a woman. He realized that he did not understand the female struggle because he was bright. He was smart. He was an interesting person, but he realized he would never be what he thought a woman should be, which was beautiful. So he put on the skin of a woman and was completely transformed inside to treat and understand women very, very differently. Um, his whole mind was completely shattered by that experience for him. And that's what that, not that women were his enemy, that's not what I'm saying, but when you put on the skin of someone else and you look at life through their eyes, it transforms you as a protagonist in your own journey. So those are two, I mean, a lot of the other things are in my bodies of work, but those are two that I would say I use um, on a day-to-day -day basis to really understand where I'm at in my journey in life. Both of those are incredibly, incredibly powerful. I, I was talking to, I interviewed a documentary filmmaker a couple of weeks ago and she makes these incredible documentaries, some about the oceans, some about um, refugees. And it's so interesting to me that she pretty much said the same thing that you are saying, but she said it in different, in different words where she said, you know, part of making a documentary is that you, you walk their path. Literally, you know, you are literally walking alongside them. And the insights that you gain by walking their path is the only thing that makes a documentary so powerful because you are, you are right there with them. I'm going to finish with, with one question. And sometimes I, I think I have an inkling about what the answer to this question is going to be and sometimes I don't. And this is one of those moments where I genuinely don't. Uh, if, if I gave you, with my magical powers, if I gave you the stage and a, and a microphone... And in front of you, I put every single person that you would ever want to influence. And I gave you five minutes. What's the one thing? What's the one thing you would want them to know? Wow. I think that um, I think that I would want them <laughs> in all of life. If I had one thing to say, it would be. Um, how do I frame this? Because it's so politically incorrect to even say something like it. But I feel that as someone who believes I was made by a loving and gracious God, I would wish I could in five minutes tell a story in a compelling way that makes it sound like it's a glorious thing to be a friend of God and spend time with him every day. That's what I would love to do. And I've been working on it. <laughs> I've, I, I go on these long hikes and have conversations about what that would look like. Because my life hasn't been easy. I mean, maybe from the outside it looks easy. But before the conversation started, I talked about my husband's journey with cancer and all this stuff. And if I didn't have a friendship with something stronger and greater and more beautiful and more centering and more gracious and, than I am, what is there to live for? And uh, I think that's what I would say. I was at a conference a couple of days ago and there was a rabbi on stage and the person interviewing him asked, asked him for his final words and he said, make friends with your soul. Yeah. Be in partnership with your soul. Mm -hmm. I agree. That sense of companionship yeah. with the part of you that is, that is bigger than this moment in time or yeah. in this body. I think too, I mean, there's a truth in all, all religions. It's, it's um, do unto others as you would do unto yourself. Like it's a love yourself so you can love others, right? And and that's the same kind of thing. Like accept and love yourself so you can be present and love others. And I think so many times we're so hard on ourselves and mean to ourselves and not soulfully present. And I think there'd be more empathy if we were. Um, so that's what I'm. And better stories told. You got it. Much better stories told. Yeah. Or. Well, Thank you so much. Yeah, it's fun. I am the biggest fan of your work and I'm going to keep nerding out on it with my crazy hand gestures that no one else can see for years to come. This was such a fun talk and your your voice is just so like relaxing and alluring. It really pulled interesting things out of me that nobody else has. So you did a really great job. It was a real treat to oh, visit with you. you. Thank you. I'm thinking about a side career of bedtime stories. <laughs> Be great at that <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much nancy yeah it was great thanks 
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.